Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Hey, I wanted to give an update on uh, Brad and Lisa. Some of you know that they left on Valentine's Day for Africa. And so Lisa sent me an update via uh, text yesterday. And so I have some pictures that I want to show you so you can kind of see what's happening on the ground there in Africa. It's not those pictures. And, well, that's a bummer. Hang on a second. I had loaded these from home, and apparently they didn't make it to this computer. And uh, maybe I can do this really fast on the fly. Let's see. You got to love technology, right? So I'm, I am trying to remote into my computer at home while we do this because that's where they are. Here they are. Copy. It's worth it. Pictures are worth it, so hang in there. Almost there. I got some of them up there? Okay. Don't know. We missed one. Let me get the other one. Okay, so um, but the picture that you're looking at right now, this is Brad over in the, he's on the far right side, and then he's in front of him in the red shirt, that is, uh, that, see how you pronounce his name, that is the pastor that he knows over there, Tanquiso, Pastor Tanquiso, and so what you're looking at is one of the homes that's in this village, and you can see kind of the conditions that they have to work with over there, right? That home, those boulders that are up there sitting on top of that roof are what hold the tin on top of the roof and the danger with that is when these are such you know deplorable conditions that sometimes those boulders can fall through the roof and so when there's kids in there it can be very devastating as you can imagine and so one of the tasks that Brad and Lisa are doing is helping put a new roof on this structure and so that structure that you're looking at tends to be one of the better ones in the village and there's no running water there's no toilet or any of that so here's here's another picture of kind of what you're seeing off in the distance as part of some of the structures in the village. This is the kind of a shot of the house from, from afar. And again, that's another one of the roof. And so it should make you think about, like, what are we living in here? And you've got people over there that are living in these kinds of conditions. We take it for granted here in America because we really have no idea. But this is what Rad and Lisa are up against. And she was sharing with me that... Um, one of the things Shoulder the Load, which is their foundation that they created, is going to do is they're going to buy new roofing materials to help put a new roof on that structure. And then they're also going to be helping with supplies. They've already shared 100 pounds of, of food already since they arrived yesterday. So this was the day after they arrived that she sent me this. And uh, so Brad and Pastor Tanquiso are going to replace the roof. She talks about the boulders that I just mentioned to you. And then um, the last picture I wanted to show you, this is Pastor Tenkiso's wife here in the right, and these are the, their children. 
And again, you can see the conditions that they're living in there. It's just, it's horrible. And so their most pressing need, if you can consider to, to pray for them, is water. The little children, there's two to seven of them, they're carrying loads of dirty water they gathered to bring back up the steep hill to their families. And some walk about a mile just to get that water. And so Lisa says that our goal is to find JoJo is what they call it. That's a water tank. And uh, they want to get it large enough to secure and store that at Pastor Tanquiso's place so that the village will have water. That's one of their goals. And so she just said that um, we are extremely blessed to be Jesus' hands and feet. And uh, she said wanted to God, she said she wanted God to bless all of you who have come alongside and have helped or prayed in some capacity for, share, uh, for shoulder the load. And so I wanted to give you an update, and we'll be doing this throughout their time there. They're going to be there for three weeks. And so periodically, I'll just be putting pictures and giving you an update of what's going on. So continue to pray for them. And it's so encouraging to know that we've got people that are breathing life into those who need hope uh, overseas. I mean, the Word of God talks about how we are to go, right? We're not to stay, we're to go. And sometimes that go for you could mean right here in this local community. It could mean go overseas, whatever it is, but we should be going to share the love of Jesus with people who need it. All right, so let me get back on track here. Last week, we talked about what it means to follow Jesus. To follow him, we first have to give up our own way. That's what we talked about. And his way is the only way. But this way is not all sunshine and rainbows, is it? It's not all cotton candy and lollipops like so much of our watered-down, feel-good, prosperity-promoting, Americanized Christianity. No, Jesus' way has a cost. And this cost will cost us everything, total and complete surrender. Every day we have a choice to make, follow Jesus or follow ourselves. And to follow him, that means we're going to have to sacrifice our entire lives to him. All that we are and all that we have should go to him. And the more that we offer ourselves to him, the less that we will offer ourselves to sin. That's what it all comes down to. You see, there is no straddling this fence. We either offer ourselves completely to him or we offer ourselves to sin. It's either life or death. There is no other choice. And you see, this choice, it reveals our level of commitment. Will we choose his commitment over our convenience? Taking up our cross requires us to deny ourselves, and that's daily. So the cost is high. But listen to me, it is more than worth it. Yes, what we have to give up is everything, but what we stand to gain is far more than our minds could ever comprehend. Remember, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Remember that? That's in Hebrews. That same joy is awaiting you and I. So we've got to keep following him. We need never to try to follow Jesus in our own strength or in our own wisdom. Because if we've received Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, then we have his Holy Spirit as our helper and our guide. So we don't ever have to follow him alone. Now, we are all sick from sin, and we're all in need of a Savior. And the way to being made, being made well, it starts with repentance, where we change our mind about our sins, and then we go in an entirely new direction. And that new direction is to follow Jesus. Now, if you have ears to hear, then Jesus is calling you right now to follow him. 
And the question I posed last week was, how will you answer? Are you like the Pharisees who think you have it all together? Listen, religion won't save you, but a relationship with Jesus will. We must follow him, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing through Brad and Lisa right now as we speak in Africa. And so we continue to pray for them, that you'd minister to those all in need, and you'd use them as your hands and feet. We thank you that we get to hear the word of God this morning. We just ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to feel it in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We're going to be studying verses 18 through 22 today. If you don't have a Bible, we've got them here on the bookshelf to my right, your left. Or you can follow along on the screen or your mobile device. Can't hear me? How about now? Is that better? Man, thank you. You need to be able to hear me. All right, so verse 18 is where we're going to start, Mark chapter 2. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. The title for today's message is New. New. God is always making things new. We are a new creation the moment we place our complete faith in Jesus. He changes us, and we become brand new. We are not a better version of the old. We are brand new. The Christian life is all about new. And we're going to expound upon this today throughout the message. Now, although our main text for today is in the New Testament in Mark chapter 2, the one we just read, I'm going to put some bookends on today's message, both from the Old and the New Testaments, as this will help us to see the bigger picture. And so if you've got your handout and you look on that first page inside your handout, you're going to see two bookends. And in the middle is all the meat of the message today and the gospel. So let me start with that very first bookend, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19. And in this text, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and here's what he says. He says, Behold, I will do, say it with me, a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now the Israelites in the Old Testament, they kept choosing their sin over God. Over and over again, their disobedience would lead them deeper into sin. And yet God is always faithful. He rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, which is a sign and a symbol of the rescue from slavery in sin and death. He rescued them again by parting the Red Sea and allowing them to walk through on dry ground, which is a sign and a symbol of water baptism where we are washed and renewed. But the challenge in the Old Testament is that the rescue from Egypt, or you could say the salvation from Egypt, did not create a new heart for the people. 
their spirits were not regenerated. In other words, they were not born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when God says through the prophet Isaiah in our text here, Behold, I will do a new thing. He is speaking of the new thing of sending his son as the once and for all time sacrifice for our sins that would provide the salvation for our souls. Through faith in Jesus, our hearts can now be regenerated. We can now be born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is the new thing. God will make a way for us to be saved when there was no other way. He will make a road in the wilderness. He will make rivers in the desert. This is the new thing. We now have the Holy Spirit who brings rivers of living waters into the deserts of our hearts. Isn't that awesome? Am I the only one that's excited today? Come on. <laughs> Do you know the difference between God's people in the Old Testament who were trying to follow a God that rescued them from slavery in Egypt and the people of the New Testament who were trying to follow a God who rescues us from slavery to sin? You know what the difference is? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. He is the difference maker that gives us the ability to walk by faith in obedience to Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us if we receive Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. It is the Holy Spirit who causes us to learn and to grow and to become holy as he is holy. So let me pause for a minute. Some of you may be new to this, and you're like, well, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is Jesus? Who is God? Let me give you something that will just blow your mind. You ready? God is three distinct persons in one. I don't know how to explain that because it's like, wow, that's like graduate level, you know, Christianity. But our God is a triune God. He is God the Father. He is Jesus the Son. And he is also the Holy Spirit, all three of those. And so when Jesus was here on this earth in the flesh, he was the full embodiment of God in a human body, right? And he died on the cross for our sins. When he ascended into heaven, he sat at the right hand of God. When he was done with his work, he was finished. He then sent the Holy Spirit to the earth. And any one of us who accept Jesus as our Savior now have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. So we have a part of God living on the inside of us. That is who the Holy Spirit is. He is the one that does all this. That's the beauty of the new thing that God is doing through the gospel. What's the gospel? It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. And his Holy Spirit would never have been possible without the new thing that Jesus did on the cross for you and me. God is always doing new things. I'm waiting for an amen. You guys are going to have to participate with me today because this is so good. This is one of those messages when I was like studying this, I'm looking at the new wine and the wine skins and the tear in the cloth and all that. And I was like, this is really neat. This is going to be awesome today, okay? I'm telling you. Now that we've seen our first bookend, we're going to jump back into our text. So the disciples of John and the Pharisees here in our text that we read in the very beginning, they were fasting. And they take notice of Jesus and his disciples, and they see that they're not fasting. And so from our text last week, we saw that Jesus and his disciples, they weren't fasting at all. What were they doing? They were feasting. And they were feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And it made the Pharisees furious. They were like, what is up with that, Jesus? Why aren't you and your boys fasting like we are? That's what they were thinking. And so Jesus responds to their question by saying, Hey, why in the world 
would the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, I want you to picture a wedding, all right? A wedding is a time of celebration. Jesus is the bridegroom. You and I, all of us, collectively are the bride as the church. And in our text today, the followers at that time were the bride. Jesus, bridegroom, followers, is, is the bride. Okay, we're at a wedding. So why would the bride and the bridegroom, or the, fens, the friends of the bride and the bridegroom, why would they fast? They wouldn't. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? And that's the point that Jesus is making. People don't fast at a wedding. They feast. They have fun. They are full of joy. They're full of joy for the bride and the bridegroom. So Jesus then says, the time for fasting will be when the bridegroom is no longer with them. But while the bridegroom is present, there is no need to fast. And you see, this is totally dumbfounded, the Pharisees. And then Jesus uses two parables in our text to explain what he's saying in detail. Now, before we go any further, let's talk about the big idea. The big idea is relationship versus religion. Okay, We've been talking about that the last few weeks. That's the big idea here. You're seeing this clash of relationship versus religion. Now, we often get caught up in these religious practices or our own works instead of what's most important, which is being in relationship with the bridegroom, Jesus. And if we will just focus on the relationship, everything will flow from that. Our love, our obedience, our works, everything. But we often make it about ourselves when it's all about Jesus. We often try to rely on our own self-righteousness, our own works. And whenever we do this, we miss the entire point. It is not about us. Nothing we could ever do is going to make us righteous enough. If we could have followed the law or done anything to make ourselves righteous or earn our own way to heaven, then there would have been no need for Jesus to die on the cross. Amen? So hear me very, very clearly about what I'm about to say. Salvation is Jesus plus nothing. You've heard me say this before if you've been in this church for any amount of time. It's Jesus plus nothing. It is just Jesus. His sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead were the complete and finished work that we all need for forgiveness and salvation. There's nothing else. That's the problem with so many religions today. They make it all about some form of works as if we can defeat sin and death all by ourselves with no need for Jesus. That is the essence of all false religions in the world. Jesus said, I am the way, meaning he is the only way. There's no other way. There's no Jesus way plus our way or plus any other way. You know what that equals? Death. That's what that equals. Jesus plus anything equals death. The only equation for salvation is Jesus plus nothing. That's it. And when we stop making it about ourselves and we make it all about Jesus, that's where the true freedom is. When we live for Jesus, when we abide in Jesus, when we remain in Jesus, this changes everything. Everything. You want to overcome sin, be in Jesus. You want to have forgiveness? Be in Jesus. You want to have true joy? Be in Jesus. You want to have purpose? Be in Jesus. Friends, he is the only way. He's the only way. Now, fasting is a spiritual discipline. 
It is not a prerequisite to holiness. That's what we're talking about in our text, fasting. And this is exactly what the Pharisees missed. Fasting is not a means to salvation. It's also not the means to greater favor from God. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Fasting, right, is one of many works. We could talk about all kinds of religious works and activities. You could talk about giving or serving or fellowshipping or worshiping. These can all be great things if we do them with the right motive. Fasting is a good thing. It can bring us closer to God because it's a form of denying ourselves so we can hear him more clearly. It's also a way that we can fight our spiritual battles. There are many positive things about fasting. So my point today is not to bash fasting or any other religious activity. My point is that no religious activity is greater than a relationship with our risen Savior. Nothing. Not one thing. We, we can't get sucked into the illusion of having to do things to be righteous. The only righteousness we have to stand on is provided solely by the blood of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law through the new covenant. But the problem with the Pharisees in our text is that they were so set in their old ways based on the traditions of men and the letter of the law, so much so, in fact, that they missed the bridegroom completely. You know why? Because they were trapped in legalism. They were trapped in legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is when we try to follow man-made traditions or religious activities or rules in an attempt to achieve salvation or spiritual growth. Don't confuse legalism with obedience. The Bible clearly teaches we must obey God. Just because we're under the grace of the new covenant doesn't give us a license to disobey God ever. At the root of legalism is pride. That's what the root of this is. Pride in thinking that we can achieve favor from God from our own effort without really any emphasis on our heart towards God. Jesus often challenged the religious elite on this very subject, and he never held back, did he? Man, you read some of those encounters of Jesus with the Pharisees, and it's like, good gracious, I'd hate to be in their shoes. So I'm going to show you one of those. I'm going to share one occasion from Luke chapter 11. And here it is, beginning in verse 37. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him to home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Now let me stop right here. Notice that the host was amazed that Jesus just ignored the ceremonial hand-washing that was required by what? Jewish custom, right? Law. Wasn't required by God, was it? It was required by Jewish custom. And yet what the religious elite would do at that time is they would hold these man-made customs and rules in such high esteem that they would often value them the same or more than what God actually required. They were always adding requirements on top of what God requires. And this is very dangerous. The Bible warns us that we're not to add to or take away from his word. Now, listen very carefully to Jesus' response. Here's what he says in verse 39. You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. 
So here we go. Legalism is all about the external. And Jesus is much more concerned about the internal. What's in our hearts? That's what he's concerned about. So he continues here in verse 40. He says, fools. Did God, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So here's another important point on legalism. <coughs> legalism majors on the minors and minors on the majors. In other words, they've got it backwards. That's what Jesus is saying here. You see, legalism kills joy. Legalism kills love. We cannot ignore the majors. What were the majors Jesus was talking about? In this text, he said justice and the love of God. Those were the majors. That should trump everything, right? He gave an example of a minor thing in our text. He's talking about tithing. Now, notice some people like to take this to the extreme and say, oh, we don't need to tithe anymore because that's Old Testament. We shouldn't do that anymore. Jesus said here, you should tithe. But he's saying, don't neglect the more important things. In other words, major on the majors, love and justice of God. Okay? We cannot ignore the majors that Jesus is speaking of here. And then verse 43. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you? For you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. Man, this is getting tense, isn't it? And then verse 45. Teacher, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us too in what you just said. Now, I love this part. This is probably my favorite part of the whole text. This one right here. One of the experts in religious law decided to tell Jesus that he just offended him. His feelings are hurt by how harsh Jesus is speaking to him. He's probably raging right now inside. Anger's welling up within him right now. Jesus just called him a fool just a few minutes ago. Imagine how you would feel being called a fool. That's enough right there to send some of you right into orbit with anger. And do you think Jesus cares one iota that he's offended this guy by speaking the truth? No, not one bit. The truth hurts. The word of God can cut just like a knife. We should not be shy about speaking the truth of the word of God in love. And we should never water it down to soften its message. The truth will offend. The truth will hurt. But it doesn't make it any less of the truth. So listen to what Jesus says. He doesn't say, oh, sorry, I hurt your feelings. Excuse me for offending you. He simply says, yes, I did just insult you because you are missing the kingdom of God entirely. You see, the truth stings. Here's what Jesus said. He said, yes. In other words, I did just insult you. I did just offended you. Okay? Then he doesn't apologize here, and then he keeps going. What sorrow also awaits you, experts in religious law? For you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. Now, Jesus doesn't even stop here. He keeps going. But for the sake of time, I've got to move on. I think you get the point that I'm trying to make. Jesus is harshly critical of legalism in all its forms. And we should be too. 
Legalism is an enemy of God, and it has no place in the family of God. Legalism emphasizes the external while neglecting the internal. That's not Christianity at all. Christianity is first and foremost a matter of our hearts. That's what it's all about. Everything flows from a heart relationship with God when he transforms us through the regeneration of our hearts. This is what it means to be born again. Our hearts are then continually transformed as we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. What's sanctified mean? That means we're set apart. That means we're being made holy as he is holy. It means we're being conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what sanctification is all about. And this doesn't happen by our own efforts. It is supernatural by the Spirit of God. So in our text for today, right after telling the Pharisees that no one fasts while the bridegroom is present, Jesus then follows this up with two parables to drive this point home. And Jesus drew these two parables from everyday life at the time to help his listeners grasp what he was saying. So here's what he said in verses 21 through 22. These are both the parables in rapid succession. Here we go. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. First, notice how many times that Jesus used the word new. This is our first clue on what's really important here. Both of these parables drive home the exact same point. And the point is, the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power of God that makes all things new. The old way of thinking, the old system of sacrifices is now coming to an end. And the Messiah, who fulfills the old covenant, is now ushering in the new covenant. Now, let's take a look at the first parable. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. So in other words, no one is going to do this. No one in their right mind is going to do this. They're not going to try to patch up an old garment because once it's washed, that new piece is going to shrink and then it's going to tear away from the old and it's going to make the tear even worse than it was before. The shrinkage of the new will cause, the, cause it to tear away from the old. You see, that is the first parable. Okay, now let's go to the second one. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now, a wineskin in those days was <clears throat> animal skin, and they would make a container out of it to hold wine. They'd stitch it all up and... That's how they held the wine. Now, the difference is, is that when you place new wine in a new wineskin, the fermentation of that new wine, when it, it puts off all those gases, it causes the container to expand because of the gases in the fermentation process. So that's why you put new wine in a new wineskin because now there's room for that wineskin to stretch and expand. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. New wineskins are flexible. They can't expand Old ones have already been expanded to their max, so they have no more flexibility if you place new wine in them. Now, if you try that, if you try to put new wine into an old wineskin, it's going to burst. Then you're going to lose the wineskin, and you're going to lose the wine. That's the second parable. 
Both of these parables are dealing with the dynamic power that is both moving and powerful, and this new dynamic doesn't fit into the old way or the old mindset of the past. The old mindset has no flexibility. It's rigid, and it's stuck in its old ways. Now, there's very important detail that's in Luke chapter 5, verse 39. It's about what we're reading here in Mark. And it's very helpful for our understanding if we go over there. So watch this. Luke records this in Luke chapter 5, verse 39. He says, And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new, because he says the old is better. This simply illustrates that when you are stuck in your old ways, you don't want the new. You are too comfortable and set in your ways with the old. You see, this person who tastes the new wine and says the old is better. That's what's going on here. How many people do you know who are set in their old ways and they want nothing to do with anything new? I know some people like that. I've seen it in my work all the time. So let's go deeper. Let's go deeper with this. The new piece of cloth and the new wine, they both represent the newness of the gospel. The newness of Jesus as the Messiah and the specific work that he came to do. We must understand that our number one priority in this life is to understand the new gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the new garment and the new wineskins. The old garment and the old wineskins represent the legalistic religion of the Pharisees. You see, legalism is inflexible. It's rigid, and it requires strict adherence to external compliance. It's like the old garment that's set in its size. It's set in its dimensions. It can't ever change. It doesn't ever move. It's like the old weathered and worn wineskins that are unyielding and inflexible. This legalistic mindset of the Pharisees cannot respond to the newness that Jesus came to bring through the gospel. You see, Christianity is new, and it's unique. There is nothing like it in this entire world. It is alive. It is fresh. It is beautiful. And at the heart of Christianity is Jesus. Anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the glory of God because Jesus is the full embodiment of God in the flesh. There's no one like him. Everything about his public ministry was new. His teachings, his miracles, his healings, all of it was new. No one had ever seen anything or heard anything like this before. Now, in the parables from our text, Jesus is the new cloth and the new wine. So he brings a whole new way of expressing how we are to live and how we are to love for God. You see, Christianity could never, ever, ever fit into the old pattern of life that the Pharisees were trapped into. The old religion under the old covenant was good for its time. It fulfilled its purpose. But now that Jesus was on the scene, it was obsolete. When Jesus died on the cross, you might remember, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And that curtain symbolized the end of the old covenant. The old is gone, the new has come. Some of you know that that curtain was hanging there in the temple, and that was there to separate man from the Holy of Holies, which was the symbol of God's presence, right? The only one who was allowed to go behind the curtain was who? The The priest. In other words, man had to have an intercessor in order to get to God at that time. And so when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain, which some people would say was more than six inches thick, was torn from top all the way down to the bottom. And what does that symbolize? That symbolizes that you and I now have direct access to God. 
We don't need an intercessor anymore. We don't need to go to a man so that we can get to God. We can go directly to him now. It's interesting today how many folks want to effectively sew back up that curtain that was torn and true, and they want to try for us to live right back under the old covenant. It's done. It's over. It's obsolete. The purpose has been fulfilled. The old covenant could never bring the new heaven and the new earth. They could never make a new man or a new woman out of us. It was weak and it was powerless. The old covenant wineskins could not hold the new wine from Jesus. And if the old covenant is gone, then so should be man's legalistic religious nonsense. Because that way of living only leads to death. Jesus came to make all things new. And when we receive him, we become brand new. Watch this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become what? New. new. So salvation is not us patching up our old lives. It is a whole new robe of righteousness that only the blood of Jesus can bring us. It makes everything new. Not only is the gospel new, it is also powerful. When we take the image of both the new cloth and the new wine from our parables, these both represent power. The new cloth shrinks powerfully, and when it tears, it tears the old. And the new wine expands powerfully, and when it does, it bursts the old. Are you with me? So what needs to shrink in our lives? Think about that. What needs to shrink in our lives? Remember what John the Baptist said? He said, he must increase, I must decrease, right? Talking about Jesus. That means I become smaller, and Jesus now in my life becomes bigger. Old patterns in our lives now need to shrink and then ultimately be put to death. And then what needs to expand in our lives? Jesus does. Yeah, the work of Christ, the gospel. For it is the power of God for everyone who believes. So what else should expand? How about our obedience? Our obedience to God needs to expand. Our holiness needs to expand. Our love needs to expand. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power in work in, at work in us if we receive Jesus in our lives by faith. That's the power that needs to expand in our lives. So have you experienced that power? Have you felt the transforming power of the Holy Spirit? Have you been made brand new by being born again? Have you had your sins exposed and forgiven? Listen, Jesus is the answer to all of this. He has that power. And this power makes everything new. So I began today's message with a bookend from the prophet Isaiah that recorded the prophecy of God in which he said he would do a new thing. That new thing was the gospel. It was both new and full of power to make a way for us to be saved when there was no other way. Jesus is that way. He is that new thing. So the old has gone and the new has come. So let me close with the last bookend today because God made all things new by the gospel. And guess what? He will do it again when he comes again to this earth. Who's looking forward to him coming back? Amen. Watch this. This comes from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, or this is John recording uh, what Jesus gave him. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who's the husband? Jesus. He's the bridegroom. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, and the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Behold, I make all things new. God is always making things new. We are a new creation the moment we place our complete faith in Jesus. He changes us. He makes us brand new. We are not a better version of the old. We are brand new. So have you been made brand new? Are you trying to live your life the old way? Listen, Jesus is the only way. And he makes all things new. So when we take the image of both the new cloth and the new wine that we talked about, I saw you, Dan. That's to keep you awake, my friend. <laughs> I'm kidding. These both represent power, see? That new cloth, that new wine, they both represent power. And see, the new cloth shrinks powerfully, and when it does, it tears the old. And the new wine expands powerfully, and when it does, it bursts the old. So what in our lives needs to shrink and what in our lives needs to expand? The gospel is the power of God. Have you experienced this power in your life? And are you experiencing that power in your life right now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who makes all things new. We thank you that the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. And so I pray right now, Jesus, that there's someone here that's never made the decision to be born again, to put their complete faith and trust in you. Lord, that your spirit would draw them today to make that decision. And for others who maybe have gotten away from you or have slipped up and are trying to follow the way of the world when there's only one way and that way is you, I pray, Holy Spirit, you draw them back to you in repentance, that they change their mind and change their direction. Father, I thank you that all things are new in you. We are not a better version of our old. We are completely brand new because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, Father, I thank you so much that we have the truth of your word to stand on. We never wrestle with trying to figure things out. We trust you, Lord. And so I thank you for the mighty work that you have done in the hearts of those who have trusted you, who have placed their complete faith in you. And so I pray, Father, that as truth bearers, we would be out there proclaiming that truth. And we will be doing it in love so that we can draw people to you. Your word tells us that we are to be salt and light. And this world needs it, needs it so badly, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. In your mighty name, amen. amen. So if you're here and would like prayer of any kind, I would love to pray with you. Uh, come forward, and we'd be happy to pray with you. Any needs that you have, questions you might have from what you heard today. But God bless you, thank you, and have a great week.